In April 2022, the Cleveland Council on World Affairs had the opportunity to speak with Elizabeth Shackelford on the importance of foreign policy education and discourse in the everyday lives of all Americans. She also shares invaluable advice on developing mentoring relationships and surprising recipe from Somalia for bananas on spaghetti. Elizabeth Shackelford joined the Chicago Council on Global Affairs in January 2021 as Senior Fellow on U.S. Foreign Policy. Her analysis, writing, and outreach focus on building awareness and understanding of a restraint approach to foreign policy, which seeks to limit the use of military force to the defense of core U.S. national security interests and favors robust diplomatic engagement. Shackelford was a career diplomat with the U.S. Department of State until December 2017, when she resigned in protest of the Trump administration. Her resignation letter was the first to draw widespread attention to the declining state of diplomacy under Donald Trump. She is the author of The Dissent Channel, American Diplomacy in a Dishonest Age, winner of the 2020 Dylan Douglas Book Award. Using both firsthand and historical observations, the Dissent Channel demonstrates that the crisis in U.S. foreign policy predated recent efforts to sideline the diplomatic corps. As a Foreign Service officer, Shackelford served in Somalia, Kenya, South Sudan, Poland, and Washington, D.C., tracking political and conflict developments, advising mission and Washington leadership, and advocating for U.S. interests with foreign counterparts. For her work in South Sudan during the outbreak of civil war in 2013, Shackelford received the Barbara Watson Award for Consular Excellence, the department's highest honor for consular work. We hope you enjoy this conversation. And that one's going. Great. So, hi, it's so nice to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yeah, really glad to, to hear from you and just really, really glad that you're sharing some time with us today. So I wanna start by giving you an opportunity to talk about you know, the thing that you came to talk about, which is the importance of American foreign policy to the American public. So if we could have a few remarks from you to start out, that'd be great. Sure. Um, so I was a US diplomat until a few years ago. And one of the things that always um, stood out to me every time I would come back home and spend a few weeks back in the United States was just how little even my family members knew about what uh, what the United States was doing overseas, what my job entailed, and you know why that why it was important, why what we were doing overseas mattered to Americans. And uh, so since I left the Foreign Service, it's been a real uh, goal of mine. And now, luckily, I'm in a job where I can do this. Um, you know. Uh, as part of my position, uh, but it's been a real goal of mine to just try and help Americans understand better what our foreign policy is, what foreign policy is, and why it matters to them and into their everyday lives. So um, I've been really grateful to have these opportunities to meet with different organizations and different communities, you know, primarily across the Midwest, but really anywhere that I can, in order to have an opportunity to just kind of share the insider's view some of what's going on down into just you know kind of normal language uh, because I don't think that um, I don't think even the media always talks in in forms and um, manners that kind of an average American audience that isn't a foreign policy professional can really understand. Thanks so much. You know, at Cleveland Council on World Affairs, we certainly share that mission. Um, we were originally founded as a women's peace building organization in 1923. We're approaching our centennial year and we're really excited about that. So I think it's a perfect time to sort of revisit that mission and 
reiterate why it's so important for our audience and our community members here to understand these things. So you've been out, I know you were at the Cleveland Rotary today, you were at the Westlake Rotary yesterday, and you're out here, you know, uh, giving this message. I'm wondering how it's being received, both in Cleveland and in other places you visited recently. It is always rewarding with every group that I've met with. I feel like there's this hunger to understand, and right now, in particular, it's actually one of the easiest times to do it um, for an unfortunate reason. Right now, of course, with the uh, Russian war in Ukraine, a lot more Americans are paying attention to what we're doing in foreign policy than they typically do. Uh, that makes it a little bit easier to capture people's attention. So I'd say the past few weeks, a lot of my outreach has um, come to much more interested audiences. Uh, but what I'm finding is that people are they're hungry to have a better idea. They have more opinions about what we're doing right now. You know, why are we doing this? Why aren't we doing this? Um, than I think I found in the past. But because of that, it's also made it a lot easier to kind of use some of, um, I mean, talk about foreign policy in terms of kind of really concrete things. You know, here are the various types of tools we can use. Here's how we're using them in the situation in Ukraine. Here's why we're not using other tools. And it's, I'm able to talk to things that people are hearing about on the news, so it just seems a lot more concrete to them right now. So I'd say um, people are ready for it. You have to make it interesting and you have to explain why it matters to them. Um, and uh, I find it really rewarding to do that. Yeah, just to touch on that idea that right now in this moment with the crisis in Ukraine and it being on top of mind for so many people, you know, we received a lot of emails and phone calls here with folks just really wanting to get some context for what's happening and exactly like you said, sort of understand what even the vocabulary is that we're using when we talk about foreign policy. I wonder if you have any recommendations for things that people could read, podcasts people could listen to, forums where people could go to get some of this context that they're so desperately looking for right now. That's a really great question. Um, and yeah, I do have some ideas um, and some specific ones to share. I mean, I'll say that some forms of media are better than others, right? Um, I think in terms of getting just kind of straight news, I'm a big believer in uh, Voice of America and BBC in terms of things. They, they have a lot of podcasts that you can, you can listen to daily. They break things down a little bit. Well, if you're trying to get more kind of specific foreign policy um, information, if you're at that level, uh, Foreign Policy Magazine, it's online, um, is a really good resource if you want to kind of go the next level depth. Um, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, who I work for, we have uh, we do a lot of events and almost all of them now are available online, which is really great. Our president, is the, um, Evo Dalder, is the former uh, secretary of NATO, sorry, the former ambassador, U.S. ambassador to NATO. And because of that, he has a lot of a lot of insights and a lot to say. And so we've been do focusing a lot of our programming on that. So I would uh, recommend that people, um, you know, reach out, uh, you know, go online to the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, follow us on Twitter if you do Twitter. Um, and uh, yeah, we have a lot of programming online as well. We also have a weekly podcast called Deep Dish. Um, and yeah, these are these are some of the resources at kind of different levels at which you can you can follow. There are a lot of great analysts on Twitter, but I have to say, if you don't know the you know if you don't know where they're coming from, um, it can be really hard to judge uh, you know, the value of the information you're getting. So, you know, at this stage, I've got certain people that I follow for military information and that type of thing, but it takes some time to figure out who to trust. Um, so I would say, you know, kind of start with some of those um, kind of more, more mainstream 
uh, things, some, something like BBC and VOA for just kind of straight news. And then, of course, I mean, you know, different organizations, different world affairs councils do some really great stuff as well and find, um, you know, the organizations in, in your community who can help direct the film. That's excellent advice. Thanks for sharing those. I'm curious too about sort of what prevents people from being able to either understand what they're seeing or hearing or maybe even preventing them from engaging. What kind of barriers do you think prevent people from being able to really dive into foreign policy and, and understand its relevance in their own life? There are a lot of barriers. I mean, one is there's been this longstanding um, perspective in the foreign policy community that foreign policy is something that's very distant from American lives. Whatever the United States decides is best for America must be best for Americans. And, you know, those of us who are experts in Washington, D.C. know about what best that is. So I don't think that there's been a longstanding tradition of even trying to translate it, trying to use plain language to talk about it. I mean, you, you talk about issues like this debate happening over a no-fly zone. Um, you know, people are like, oh, why aren't we doing a no-fly zone? That seems like a really obvious thing. Well, if you actually use more plain language that people might understand, no-fly zone is basically an air war. I mean, it's it's not some magical thing that you can just declare. And so just that terminology that we get a lot of times in, in media um, can be a barrier to understanding the specifics about what we do. And a lot of that comes from the nature of, you know, who the media tends to interview on these things. Um, you know, a, a lot of um, a lot of media will go directly to, you know, kind of former ambassadors or former generals and people like that who aren't really that practiced in communicating with a normal public audience. So I think there needs to be a more deliberate approach to trying to communicate things to, um, you know, to a regular audience. If you want them to pay attention and care about, you have to explain it in a language that doesn't involve acronyms, that explains the organizations that are behind the acronyms, that type of thing. See, another big barrier though is, um, I mean, we have a flood of information online. And so if you're interested in this, you can scroll through Facebook and see lots of headlines get, that get pushed your way. A lot of people are persuaded by headlines before they read articles. I see this all the time. I see this in people in my circles. They will see an alarmist headline and they will forward it to me and say, oh, what's happening? This seems really stupid or this seems like a great idea we should support. And it's important to understand that the people who write articles don't write the headlines that go with those articles. Um, just basic facts that you don't understand if you're not in the world of news or opinion writing is that those those uh, those headlines are often uh, created specifically to get clicks and they're created by the editors, not by the author. So if something seems really alarming, read the article to find out if that's actually the case. Um, and just uh, yeah, that large amount of information that's available online makes it really hard to kind of sift through what's true and what's not, um, as does kind of the media's tendency to try to find the most alarming version of a story. I don't blame the media for it. It's it's the reaction. I mean, it's a you, you have to fund media. And the way that you do that is by getting people to read things and to pay for things. And the way that you do that is by being the most alarming. And, um, you know, it's the nature of the beast. So I do think that we have a responsibility to, you know, have a an initial filter. Ask yourself if that's what the facts are that are that are behind it. Ask yourself if this is a trusted source. Ask yourself, did they say X was happening or was it a suggestion? I mean, that sounds kind of laborious, but you can kind of teach yourself how to read things a little bit more critically, um, and that just arms us to be a little bit better to be better informed. 
that also touches on something that I'm sort of grappling with in my own life. I'm learning about foreign policy in this job sort of for the first time. I've lived all over the world. I'm an English language teacher by training. Um, and so, you know, I, I lived in places, actually lived in Georgia um, during the Mdavia of years. And I was in Myanmar um, right before the coup happened. I was a, a COVID wow. evacuee from there. So I've lived through and in and been affected mm -hmm. by these big foreign policy things, but right. never had any idea what was happening that was affecting my life. Right. <laughs> um, and so I'm learning about it now for the first time. And one of the things that is um, difficult for me is that I didn't have a good education when I was very young in geopolitics, even in geography, mm -hmm. in, mm -hmm. you know, social studies, in even Western Civ. And that sort of early education, I feel like it's really sort of handicapping me to, to being able to, I'm like catching up um, in my middle age, which has been a ton of fun. I enjoy learning. It's one of the things that really keeps me going. And I love this job for that reason. Do you think that earlier education or what types of earlier education might help us think about, you know, the next generation, if we're thinking of like my nieces and nephews, how can they not be in the position that I'm in <laughs> in another 30 years? I think that's a really great thing to recognize. And, you know, a big part of it is is what we focus our education on. And, and part of this is, is geography, uh, not studying geography, but the facts of our geography. We are a large country that goes from ocean to ocean. When you live in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, you, you don't have the luxury of not knowing what's going on in your neighborhood. You don't have the luxury of traveling on vacations every year and not having to leave a place that has your language, has your history, and is your country. Um, and that's, that really does kind of put us in a position um, that in addition to the fact that the United States for much of our lives has really been a hegemon, um, it's really warped our approach to the world. It's made it less valuable for us to learn about other cultures, learn other languages, and just really have a better understanding of how things work. I find it really fascinating. I spent a lot of my career in Africa, and I found it fascinating that in many of the countries that I lived in across the continent, people were more familiar with U.S. history absolutely than I was familiar with the histories in their countries. And that is just part of, you know, kind of par for the course when you're coming from the country that every other country in the world can't afford to ignore. But it does handicap us. And as we're moving into a stage where, you know, we're really no longer in a unipolar world, things are a lot um, more kind of fraught on the geopolitical stage, but also very interesting in terms of, you know, other rising powers. Europe has really shown that it's coming into, I would say coming into its own. It's been around for a million years, but Europe is, is kind of taking a, um, a bit more of an equal position in, you know, this current conflict that's happening uh, with Ukraine in terms of NATO. So a lot of stuff is going on out there, and I think it's going to become even more important for Americans to understand better what's happening because we no longer have that benefit of just being the, the only big kid on the block. Um, so I think, I, I mean, you have to go into the level of detail of, you know, readjusting and assessing what our geography and history lessons are out there. Um, but the first step to do that is just recognizing the importance of, you know, raising children who can be competitive in this very globalized world, they need to know more about the world that we're in. You know, if you want to be successful in just about any business out there, you've got to understand um, what's going on in other countries. You've got to be able to function in those other countries. Uh, so I think that the first step is just recognizing that we have a lot more to gain by having that understanding. And we could have gotten away with it a few decades ago, but I think now we really can't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, um, one of 
Council here in the Avenge does is run model UN programs. Wonderful. Yeah. I wonder if you had any early experiences like Model UN that sort of spurred your career and got you into this and got you curious about the world in this way. You know, I didn't. I didn't have an opportunity like that, but I love it. And I try and, um, you know, help students out who are doing that whenever I can, because I think it's such a great way to start getting a perspective of the world. I stumbled into it. I mean, like you, I was certainly not raised in an environment where I uh, understood foreign policy. I, I knew that diplomats represented America around the world, but I didn't have the foggiest idea how you became one um, or anything like that. My first venture into exploring the rest of the world really came from a study abroad that I did in college. Uh, I went to South Africa. Um, I was born and raised in Mississippi. I was drawn to South Africa because I wanted to kind of under, better understand the apartheid situation that had only ended a few years before. And I wanted to get a better sense of kind of how other places dealt with race relation issues. Um, and it was incredibly eye-opening for me. So I, I don't think that there's a substitute for trying to get uh, for trying to get overseas. It's not the easiest thing that everyone can do. You have to have the financial capacity and that type of thing. So short of that, I think programs like Model UN are, are probably going to be the, the best opportunity that you have close to home to just start understanding how countries interact in the world and just to start widening your lens. Every time I travel to another country or learn about another country or decide to write something about another country, I kind of color that map in in my brain and it always looks differently to me. So when you start trying to, you know, if you're in a Model UN program and you're representing country X and you're starting to see it, it just really widens your perspective. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It's, it's sort of like Suddenly, when things come into focus that were just sort of blurry background in yes. <laughs> before. Yeah, I love that moment. I love that moment in languages, yes. too, when suddenly some vocabulary slips into place and then a whole cultural concept makes sense. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned that you spent quite a lot of time in Africa during your career. I wonder if there are any of those moments where something really clicked into focus for you in your journey of, of learning about foreign policy as a diplomat mm -hmm. um, and how how that job <laughs> became unfoggy to you. Oh, I mean, there have been many of those occasions um, and they are, you never see them coming. And it's, it's always like an aha moment. I would say one of the earliest aha moments that made me think, wait, the United States is not just great and all powerful, <laughs> was when I was having a conversation. I was living in Uganda. This was before I was a diplomat, but I was working doing legal and regulatory development work um, for USAID, the US Agency uh, for International Development. And I was speaking with, <clears throat> with a Ugandan colleague of mine that I had met there, uh, talking about democracy. And this was, I'm going to date myself, this was, this was well before the United States started having such trials and tribulations with our own electoral systems um, and political situations. This was back in a kind of more, um, a, a less fraught time uh, politically for us. So it was a time when I just thought American democracy is the greatest thing on earth and everybody should be trying to adopt it. And she looks at me and says, in your democracy, and it, it wasn't even provoked by me, I wasn't even thinking to have a conversation about democracy. But she said, I don't understand you Americans. 51 people or percentage of 51% can say they want X to be in charge and 49% can say they want Y to be in charge. And then that 49% just doesn't matter anymore. It's just the first past the post idea seems really wrong. Like how can you just tell 49% of the people like your choice is invalid and you've lost. And so you're gonna have to send the next however many years focusing you know, under the rule of this 
51% choice. I said, I don't know what the alternative is to that. And she said, making people agree. Um, now that sounds really hard, right? But at the end of the day, if you look at, let's say a parliamentary system, it's far more focused on consensus, right? So you can have a group of smaller parties that have to agree that they're gonna be similar enough on certain core issues that they can build a coalition. And so at first I was like, I don't know, whether you're gonna sit around in a village and just decide who's the, the consensus leader, but there are systems and ways to do that. So it just, I mean, every political system has its challenges, but for me, it just, shook my foundational thinking that every way that America does things is both the right and only best way to do it. And for me, that was just a real aha moment that made me think, you know, not everything looks the way that we see it from our eyes and our history. And it really, um, it really made me reflect a lot more on, you know, the assumptions that we make about um, democracy, governance, and all sorts of things coming from uh, uh, the background of the United States. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I, I've also had those moments where you, you we say, I, I've also worked in study abroad, and we say that yeah. you can't really learn about the United States until you're outside of yes. it. Um, and so I, I love sending young people abroad to get that mm -hmm. distance and, and be able to see the bigger picture from abroad and then love hearing the stories that they come back with <laughs> and how they interpret that and how they move on. So for a young person who might be seeking these types of experiences or seeking this type of career after having or one of these experiences where they realize ah, maybe the U.S. is not the, the be all and end all. I, I refer to my moment as like, oh, the time that I realized it wasn't all about me. <laughs> um, so, you know, for, for a young person who's coming up and seeking these kinds of things, what advice would you give them to, to hone their experiences to, you know, move forward confidently in a career? I'll start by saying, I used to always encourage people to try and get an internship or work overseas. And I still think that that's a wonderful opportunity or in any foreign country. But I also recognize that that is only open to people who are, are in either positions to get some form of scholarship to do so or have the financial means. So I've, I've done a lot of thinking about the other ways to, to get a similar type of experience. And I think you can find ways, whether it's through internships, work, or volunteering, to work inside other cultures. Because when you can start to realize how to see things, understand things, and function effectively in a different culture, that's a very similar experience to doing so in another country. And that type of appreciation for different perspectives and the ability to kind of take yourself out of your bubble and look at your bubble from the outside can happen in a different country and it can happen in a different culture. And by different cultures, I mean like the obvious ones are, you know, working with uh, whether it's kind of refugee communities or immigrant communities, any community that functions in another language gives you that type of thing. But you know, even broadening outside of that, you know, what what is the different, you know, there are different types of cultures that we can work in. Uh, a culture of a prison, for example, you know, people whose lives are bound by uh, totally different constraints that you can't understand. I mean, that might be the kind of place where you can get a different perspective on your life and your reality by seeing it from a different place. So I just encourage people to kind of look around their communities and their worlds and their contacts, because, you know, don't be shy about using the network that you have, whether it's a church or a school or, you know, the, the career development program at your university or, you know, I mean, any of these things are options that you can use. But the key is to try and find a place where you are not going to be in your comfort zone. 
and try and find a way to function in that comfort in that other zone to understand the people that you're working with and try and figure out what are what's driving people and what are their priorities. And that's a way that you can learn. I mean, these are core skill sets for somebody in a diplomatic world, but also anybody who has to work in different cultures is to get a sense of in order to understand, in order to make progress working with someone else, you have to know what drives them, what their goals are, what their needs are. And that's how you kind of negotiate a, a, a middle ground, a, a ground that works for both of you. I totally agree. And um, we have one of the pillars of the, the council's work here is global competency training. And it's so rewarding to see people going through that process and sort of explicitly learning how to do those, but there's no substitute for being outside of your comfort zone. Especially, I think, being in a, a culture where you are the non-dominant culture. Yes. So, for example, if you have white skin, being in a culture where not everyone has white skin yeah. can be a really transformative experience um, for a lot of people. So, I, I want to ask you a little bit about this idea of the socioeconomic means needed to have experiences in other cultures. Um, I myself was extremely lucky. I studied abroad when I was in high school in Mexico, um, and then I was able to be a Peace Corps volunteer. Mm -hmm. So even though I come from a low socioeconomic background, that was an opportunity for me, as you said, where I was able to volunteer, mm -hmm. be in another culture, mm -hmm. um, and have that experience. Do you think that the that the the world at large, so the folks that do study abroad, you know, your university mm -hmm. and even foreign service, and I, I don't want to ask you, you know, too much to like look into a crystal ball and say say what <laughs> say what the department is doing, um, because we don't really know. But do you think it's getting better? Do you think that there's hope for the next generation of folks? to be able to have these types of experiences. Don't even have to look into a crystal ball because some things are actually happening. Um, even, it was maybe a week ago that the State Department finally, after much hemming and hawing, um, has finally instituted paid internships. I cannot express how incredibly essential this is and what a massive barrier to entry having unpaid internships has been for so long, both inside Washington, D.C. and in all of our embassies around the world. Um, if you're trying to talk diversity, equity, inclusion across the board, whether we're talking about minority communities, socioeconomic issues, um, there is nothing that you can do to harm the, the, well, to change the, the, uh, the level playing field than to provide people with better financial means, an opportunity that gives them a foot in the door and that type of experience than, you know, than by not paying for internships. So I am incredibly happy, horrified that it took them so long. People have been fighting this fight on the inside for years, but I'm very excited that they finally um, made that move. Um, in other ways too, right now the State Department um, under this administration, they have their first office of diversity, equity, and inclusion. They have um, uh, they have a, a, a very well-renowned um, ambassador heading that up right now. Um, and it's I think that it's important to say the proof is going to be in what they actually do because it's important to set up offices. It's important to have good leadership, but at the same time. If, if it, it's entirely possible still that they can um, do things that are more for show than for action. But for anyone listening who's interested in a career in the Foreign Service, there will be a hiring surge. We've been hearing a lot about it and it's going to happen. There is a very close um, focus on, um, on increasing our numbers of both women and minorities in the Foreign Service. And so I see that happening. 
where I have my doubts that they are going to make some progress here, and this is something that I've seen throughout my career, um, is are they going to manage to make the structural institutional changes that they need to continue to promote and move people up through the system um, in a more equitable manner? It's not intentional. It is a, a matter of unconscious bias and some structural situations that continue to benefit certain people, um, but that's a huge problem and the, the organization needs to change. Um, but at this stage, if you're early in your career or you're just starting out, it's a great time to apply. I came into the Foreign Service under what was called the Diplomacy 3.0 program under Secretary Clinton. At the time, they were trying to, to bring in more diversity and they did. I had a very diverse class coming in. Um, under the last administration, when we did see a lot of people depart the State Department, um, anecdotally, every individual mid-level person that I know who left was a, a woman, a person of color, or both. Um, and so that's the type of thing that continues to hinder us to having diversity of the higher ranks. So that's a lot of work that still needs to be done. But the good news is if you're early in your career, you have more opportunities to get that type of um, that type of experience in an internship. You have more opportunities to come into the administration, to come into this um, into the State Department as a Foreign Service officer, for example. Um, so I encourage you to do that. And then once you're on this inside, help keep fighting this fight for a focus, a very direct and intentional focus on making sure that we make the, um, the bureaucratic changes we need to be able to, um, to help people of all backgrounds move up in that institution. But, you know, once, once folks are in and even, you know, foot in the door with those paid internships, um, which is fantastic yeah. news. <laughs> More and everywhere, right? I know. <laughs> you know, one of the things that, um, that I think internships do really well is set young up with mentors. Yes. And that relationship can be so transformative to someone's path. Who have been some of your mentors and how have they affected your life and career? Well, I'll start by saying mentors do not happen naturally. Um, there is has been a big push recently in a lot of kind of corporate backgrounds and in the government to kind of structure mentorship programs. And those are important and absolutely participate them in them. But it's also essential to develop and cultivate your mentorships and to be shameless about it. Um, you know, I think if people, if there are students who are out there who are looking for this type of um, a position who are looking to get into foreign policy, scroll around LinkedIn, find people who have the jobs that you want and just send them a cold message and say, I'm a student, I'm interested in this career, I'd love to hear about it. Um, because I get those all the time, uh, at least a couple times a week, and I set up a phone call with every single one of them. Um, and I know a lot of other people who do. And maybe you throw that net out there and maybe one in 50 respond, but it doesn't take long to copy and paste a message and send it to people. So for, they absolutely cultivate those mentorships. Um, I had a number of, of mentors early in my career. I've had mentors throughout my career. Um, one of the uh, most important, uh, well, some of the most important, I have so many, but I've also cultivated them. In law school, I went to law school at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, I worked very closely um, with uh, a number of professors that I had, and I built relationships. And I told them over time how where I wanted to go. I didn't really know. I wanted to do human rights law. I didn't know what human rights law meant at the time. But because I built those relationships, as opportunities showed up in their door, they would share them with me, and they would talk to me. And if I said, well, I really would love to do an internship in this area, they would help me find 
somebody in that area. It might not have been somebody they know, but somebody else that they know. So I had um, a wonderful mentor at the University of Pittsburgh. She was a young professor at the time, um, Elena Bayless. Um, I have uh, actually had many, many uh, professors at the University of Pittsburgh who helped me find future jobs. Um, uh, professor Ron Brand, who's the head of the um, of the Center for International Legal Education there, um, helped me uh, tremendously with finding future work um, and internship opportunities and, and, and just giving me encouragement all along the way. Now, you might be thinking, but then you became a diplomat, um, which was a different career path. But I've got to say that the people who help you early in your career um, you know, help you figure out both what you want to do and what you don't want to do. And that's really essential as well. When I moved um, into the, the State Department, you know, I've um, cultivated uh, relationships and mentorships there as well. Um, I'll be honest, uh, you know, a lot of them were, were very helpful in terms, I mean, the State Department is a place where you really move up for decades quite often. And a lot of the older, older, um, more senior people that I worked with are, were really of that generation. And now we're seeing people who are changing a lot of what they're doing um, and not staying in the same job. But how this kind of impacted me was those mentors didn't necessarily help me find my next job. Frankly, they expected that I was going to stay in the State Department forever. So they would help me decide where in the State Department I'd like to apply for positions. But what they did that was really essential um, you know, some of the ambassadors and, and um, you know, kind of office directors that I worked for was that they gave me the confidence. Um, they were sounding more and they helped me have the confidence that I needed to change my, my job and what I was doing. You know, I spoke with a number of those mentors about my decision to leave the State Department. Um, you know, in that case, it was more about a professional confidence that I would have other opportunities and that the decision I made um, you know, despite costing some opportunities, uh, would also present some other ones. So that was less about, you know, specifically finding a job than just having the confidence to make a job change. So I'm grateful for those mentors as well. Yeah. I am so glad that you had good mentors. And now that we are, we are both at another stage of our career and now thinking about the next generation, what advice do you have for mentors of how to cultivate relationships with mentees and, and what they have? And I'll tell you a little bit of the background of why I ask this is that I find a lot of times mentors think of themselves as um, being in a position of like, well, I had it really tough. And so my mentee is going to have it really tough. And so like, that's just the way that it is. And they'll pay their dues, just like I paid my dues. Um, and I'm personally not a believer in, in that system. I think that the reason that we mentor is to make it easier for the next mm -hmm. generation. Um, and so I'd love to hear your thoughts for those, for those people who may be thinking about picking up a mentee or cultivating relationships with younger people. You know, it's, it's an important thing to bring up because I did face that. And, you know, you and I, you and I are in the same kind of broad age band of women in this career. And I have often thought that the generation just ahead of us, particularly for women, did have it very hard. And my experience, I'll say almost all of, most of my mentors have been male. And that's not for any purpose. That's not that's something that I sought out, but I did feel like there was a sense of a lot of the women who were a generation ahead of me kind of professionally um, did have that sense that they had it really rough. There was only so much room at the table for women. And so I didn't feel a lot of confidence from that. I feel as though that sentiment has really changed. And I've seen in my 
um, my generation of, of women in foreign policy, we all understand that there are not enough women at the table and we're all part of trying to bring more women there. So I think that there's been, um, you know, it used to be harder to develop those types of mentorships, I believe. But talking about, you know, advice for mentors. And I think that's a really good point. Nobody knows, nobody's born knowing how to be a mentor. I mean, it's kind of like how you move up in an organization and all of a sudden they're like, you've excelled. So you're going to manage people down. It's like, you didn't tell me how to manage people. I've been a subject matter expert. And so I do think it's important that people are deliberate about being mentors. It's important to figure out at the outset what your mentee is looking for. Are they looking for you know, guidance towards what kind of career they might want? Are they looking for help towards getting to a certain career path? Are they just looking for a sounding board on basically how to work in a professional environment? I mean, depending on the mentee and where they are in their professional stage or their path, they could be looking for very different things. It might be like, it might be something like, um, you know, basics about, about working culture, you know, sending kind reminders to send thank you emails after meetings with people and how to dress comfortably but professionally in different scenarios and and i think it's really important to open that door to all of the quote unquote dumb questions there are no dumb questions and at that professional stage it's important to remember that people aren't born knowing how to function in a work environment that's even more important now after a couple of years of COVID and people doing a, a lot of what we did early in our careers remotely so i think it's important to really deliberately open that door to all those types of conversations and questions and to be gentle but um, direct when you see things that are a big miss and when you when you're working with somebody young person who's applying for jobs and they're not writing cover letters because they're not required like that's kind of a good opportunity to be like you should really be writing cover letters if you really want that job just little practical things like that and then transitioning over to make sure that you're providing that kind of guidance because that can be the make or break for people getting jobs and then in terms of where they want to go you know in a career path i think it's really important to help young people understand that you know, my job as a mentor is not to put you on my path. My job as a mentor is to help you find your path and be, you know, in a position to pursue it. Um, so it gets back to that whole, it's not all about me point that we were talking about earlier. That's probably the biggest piece of advice for mentors. Remember, this is about your mentee. It's not about you. They're not necessarily going to be facing the same obstacles as you did. Um, don't put them on your, your path. Help them find theirs. So I have one question for you at the end. Um, here in this office, we really love food. And uh, <laughs> food from around the world comes up in most of our mm -hmm. conversations. Um, and so for folks that have lived abroad a lot, I often find that there's like one thing that you loved when you lived in a particular country and you can't find it in the United States and you crave it. And I wonder what that thing is for you. Um, I'm going to give two answers. One is I really loved pierogies when I was in, uh, when I was serving in Poland. And I also understand that there might be somewhere near here that I can find pierogies. So my plan after this podcast is to go hunt down pierogies. I can help you with that. Um, one thing that I could reconstruct here, but I feel like is just socially inappropriate in America, is that in Somalia, there is this curious tradition um, combined between their kind of colonial background of having the Italian influence, but the fact that they produced a very large number of bananas in that they slice up bananas in their pasta. 
and that sounds crazy, but I found it very delicious. That said, I have not since I returned from Somalia been able to bring myself to slice up a banana in my spaghetti. I'm not sure why, it just seems wrong to do outside of Mogadishu, um, but it was that sweet, salty thing that I just loved when I was there. I have never heard of this, and <laughs> I love that there's a food out there that I've never even heard of. Thanks for sharing that with me. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me here today and for sharing all of these views. This is such important work. Thanks for reaching out so that we can share your opinions with our members. Really appreciate your time today. Grateful for your organization's mission, which is in many ways the same as my own. So thank you for having me. Cool.